Perkins, co-founder and executive director of our New York City-based anti-trafficking organization, Beauty for Freedom, and co-host of Breaking Distance, our podcast with the mission of connecting communities while igniting change. And today we have a really special guest, Lisa Dent, the executive director of Artspace New Haven, a visionary and dynamic nonprofit organization championing emerging artists and building new audiences for contemporary art. Now, this is our fourth episode in a multi-part Breaking Distance series on race, art, and everything in between, where we bring stories that uplift diverse communities and investigate systemic racism plaguing our world today and that has plagued our world throughout history. Now, Art Space New Haven's current exhibition, A Revolution on Trial, is a group exhibition which recognizes the 50th anniversary, local histories, and lasting legacies of the trial of Black Panther Party Chairman Bobby Seale, New Haven Chapter founder Erica Huggins, and seven other party members. While Seale and Huggins were acquitted of the murder of Panther member Alex Rackley, the 1970 case shook the city and exposed deep inequities in the legal system and wider social structures. And uh, Lisa, you've had such a diverse and expansive career in uh in art, in the art industry thus far, particularly in supporting and nurturing the work of emerging and living artists. I'd love for you to expand on your introduction and, and also kind of delve into what it's what your experience or journey has been like as a person of color in the art world uh, and throughout your diverse career. Thank you, Monica. Uh, that is a tough question sometimes because it's been a, a winding road and I've been saying to people for a long time that it's difficult for me to pinpoint exactly when I knew that I wanted to work with living artists it's just something I knew in my sophomore year of college at Howard University and I also recognized at that point that I wanted a art historical education that was grounded in the African diaspora. I had transferred from UCLA and I was looking for uh, a different kind of program. And I think that a lot of that had to do with some of the work that I was seeing by black artists in the early nineties, which includes things like Spike Lee. I mean, I often remind people not to discount popular culture because it encourages a whole new group of uh, young people to consider that work. And that was certainly true for me. And when I decided to study art history in college and go to Howard, I think that I was still unaware of the way in which the museum, these larger institutions, had worked with Black artists and Black arts professionals in the beginning, right? So I simply knew that I wanted to work with artists. I uh, applied for an internship at the Hirshhorn Museum of Contemporary Art in Washington, and that was my first experience. And I, it was the beginning of kind of this, as I said, winding road through um, trying to find opportunities where I could be closer to professionals that were going to teach me what it meant to work with artists in a museum. After that experience, I had another um, fellowship that expanded at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, and that's what brought me to New York. And I think 
uh, a lot of the experience I have uh, had, excuse me, then is what grounds me today. I feel like I arrived in New York at a time when a lot of artists were uh, being invited into the museum in a way that they hadn't been prior to that. And of course, now looking back at it, I realized that a lot of my professors at Howard, who at the time I thought were not encouraging me to, you know, be great and, and think big and do all these things, what they were actually feeling might have been closer to you know, confusion or even a little resentment because I wanted to work at the institutions that had ignored them for so long. I wanted to, uh, I saw these museums, I wanted to be a part of them. I was less aware of the, all of the kinds of protests that had been happening in the 70s and 80s um, by artists. And so I, you know, went ahead in New York and tried to absorb as much as I could. And I, you know, was mentored by some of the greatest female um, arts professionals today. Thelma Golden was one of my first bosses. I was her gallery assistant when she was at the Whitney Museum. I was working in the curatorial department when Marsha Tucker was leading the new Museum of Contemporary Art. And my first boss was uh, a woman named Alice Yang, who was the only uh, Asian American curator that I knew at the time, who unfortunately passed away. Um, and so the question of if are there, you know, BIPOC people interested in working in the arts, it was never a question for me. They were, they were all around me. But within five or six years, so many of my early colleagues left the profession. Um, they weren't finding jobs. They weren't finding uh, ways to make their art. They, you know, some left the country because they felt that they could expand in the way that many black people have felt through the years. Uh, and I was also having real difficulty in those institutions and ended up feeling like I needed to leave. I needed to take a break. I actually took a break for several years. And I started to do more theater, which I also had a background in. I, I started to do other things until uh, I was back in California in my hometown of San Francisco and realized that, you know, for better or worse, being interested in the work of living artists and wanting to work in those places and support them was who I was. And so I tried to find ways to be in the profession, but not of it. And how can I do that began to look like having my own gallery. Commercial, yes, but really with the idea to try and create community. It was not all BIPOC artists, but uh, I certainly feel really excited about the fact that some of the artists I was able to work with are doing really well today, like Hank Willis Thomas and Candice Lynn and Marcia Gray and Flo McGarrell. So uh, was someone that I showed who unfortunately also 
um, passed away during the Haitian earthquake or passed by. So, you know, there would be these moments where I felt really invigorated and challenged and then felt like something had happened that would sort of pivot me um, and think that I also felt a little bit like it was all on my shoulders and hadn't really found a community of other people yet that I thought understood we wanted to support living artists, but that there are ways in which these larger institutions were not helping us do that. But again, I went back into a collecting institution because there was an opportunity for a position and I really wanted to do that. So I worked at the Columbus Museum of Art in Ohio and brought forward exhibitions by artists Stephanie Suhuko and Latifa Ishaksh and again felt in the institution but not of it and it you know became very difficult to present my ideas about how we could share art with a broader community um, and in some ways the museum really only wanted me to have that be a black audience and I began to feel like well that what they wanted if they were to hire a black curator were um, were black artist shows and that was it and so that any interest I had in learning about part uh, other parts of the collection or presenting them or thinking about uh, other kinds of work that would come in surprisingly we talked about the fact that they didn't it wasn't what they were looking for and so navigating all of that you know continually was confusing for me um, and but I did find in my work at Creative Capital an organization that was committed to simply finding funding resources for an artist and uh, not just writing them a check but to give them a whole range of support uh, so that they could put together their projects and I think that that was um, had been the first time in a long time that I felt like all of my skills and all of my interests were falling right into the perfect job for me at the perfect time. But there were a couple of incidents that happened in the office that prompted some younger colleagues to call for anti-racism training. And it was during that anti-racism training that I had to lift the veil that I had created for myself over the kinds of things that were happening at work and that the colleagues that I was working with every day to my surprise weren't aware of a lot of the challenges for BIPOC artists and disabled artists in the field. They um, were not interested in changing some of the ways in which we worked and uh, ultimately, um, you know, partially for financial reasons, I understand, you know, I was laid off with a couple of other people. And so I had to take a moment and really think about, um, was I going to work in these areas, right? Am I going to, I sort of think of it like dating, you know, you kind of keep trying to date somebody um, that you love, but they're just not loving you in a way that feels good. But I still felt that I had something to contribute, um, particularly after realizing that I was seeing leaders 
um, that I wasn't very excited about and therefore thought, well, then I guess I don't want to be a leader. And instead, in conversations with friends and colleagues realized that uh, the only way that I could show people what it might mean to have a different kind of organization was to lead one. And that's when I began to actively search for a leadership role. And I, I couldn't be happier to have landed at Artspace New Haven. Yeah, that's, you know, just listening to you and and kind of, you know, I can kind of feel the emotion and, and I feel like I was on that journey with you a little bit. It was very um, eye-opening yeah. to, to kind of hear what you have gone through. And I know it's a longer story you know, within the journey of your life, yeah. but it sounds like at times that you must have been incredibly lonely, you know, mm -hmm. um, feeling that you are a trailblazer in the silo. You're screaming to break down doors and to create new avenues to, to uplift living artists and, and in particular living artists of color. Having a seat at the table, even if you think you have a seat at the table, isn't always a real seat at the table, you know, like you're talking about sort of like, you know, lifting that veil that you also created for yourself because you wanted to believe that you could make real impact within these infrastructures that were existing. We had a conversation uh, previous to this, you know, recording about considering the clear distinctions between museum and art orgs that have active living artists as opposed to collections and the structural racism that can be deeply rooted in organizations that have collections as opposed to museums and other orgs that don't. Yeah. Can you speak to that as well? Because I was so intrigued by this conversation is really going to the root of the root and the bud of the bud of what these ideologies are saying in regards to like, you know, our liberation within the art world, which I think should be talked about. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Because, uh, and you're right that it, it was particularly lonely and not that long ago, I actually texted an old colleague, Franklin Sermons, who now is the executive director at the Perez Art Museum in Miami. And we were saying, you know, how jealous and um, excited we are for our younger colleagues because they have so many other people to talk to about what they're experiencing. And for a while, he and I and people like uh, Sandra Jackson Dumont and a few other people were the only ones kind of still around, you know, <laughs> looking for a job and everything. And he and I both were kind of focused on living artists and in and out of these institutions, like you said, um, that were either collecting institutions, which is the way we describe a museum that brings in objects and holds them and cares for them in the traditional sense, versus what really comes from the European Kunsthal idea, which is that you are only showing exhibitions by living artists on a rotation and you're not bringing anything, uh, purchasing anything, and holding it in the collection for perpetuity. And that was a distinction that was, you know, again, something that I learned from my time in New York in the 90s. Because of my early entry-level jobs, a lot of the things I didn't have access to and understanding how these objects got into the collection. So even though my fellowship at the Museum of Modern Art was actually in the registrar department, which is 
how I began to understand how the um, shipping and insurance and, and how these things um, are brought in and opened up and looked at and then made sure that they're returned. I mean, that was an experience that a lot of other um, of my young colleagues weren't getting. Um, it was very difficult to get an internship outside of the education department in those days. Um, curatorial internships were by and large going to graduate students from the academy or the families of wealthy donors and um, stakeholders. So it really wasn't until I worked at the Columbus Museum of Art that I understood what another colleague, Somi Molo, really identified clearly as the colonization and the way that colonization is the root of museological work. So it's about um, amassing objects to hold and making sure that there, there's value to them through an economic system and a market um, so that there continues to be wealth in that society. I mean, that's, that's how it started. And when I went into the museum in Columbus and uh, was starting to be asked to uh, look at an object and uh, be in touch with an appraiser or an auction house to see if the value that was written on a piece of paper was still the value or had it risen. I became to deeply understand how our capitalist economic system is embedded in the museum and the way in which um, the financial resources are allotted, right? So in collecting institutions, so much of the resources have to go towards um, storage and people monitoring that storage and um, insurance costs and uh, shipping and receiving. And so when people are wondering, you know, why are some entry-level salaries so low? Why are uh, there fewer jobs? Um, why do people stay? A lot of it is because of that. A lot of collecting institutions in this country are actually now struggling because so much of what they need to do is uh, expensive in our financial system if you have a collection. And so that when you're looking at another kind of museum of contemporary art, uh, the Museum of Contemporary Art Houston is a good example, um, they do not have a collection. And it was actually a phone conversation with what someone I consider a mentor and a colleague, Valerie Castle, who was working at the Museum of Contemporary Houston, um, Contemporary Art Houston at the time, who helped me see and understand that her ability to do work at that institution in a way that I wasn't able to in Columbus, because so much of my time required working on objects that nobody would see. And to uh, see how the auction houses and the museums come together to create a value for these objects. And when I started to look more closely at the way that the values were given, I mean, it should be no surprise that the, the work by women and BIPOC artists were uh, 
incredibly undervalued as far as I was concerned. And the, the prices and costs for them um, were much lower than they were for white male artists. And so then it just, it was so clear and right in paper, on paper, what the real challenge is in thinking about how to rethink museums and how we think about art objects in this country. I know it's disheartening when you are seeing everything unveiled in front of you. (laughs) And it could probably also give you this weight of like, you have a personal mission in life of what you want to accomplish. And and sometimes you feel like the weight of the world is kind of like sitting on your chest. Like once one thing becomes unveiled and it's almost like the domino effect, you start seeing everything else and you're like, well, I know like my personal mission is to accomplish these things in life, but how, when the infrastructure is built so skewed against me, can I accomplish these things? I I used to not think I had much passion because I kept getting knocked down in a way it felt, but uh, I, learning to look at the positive side the way you are, right? That I'm getting up and that um, my desire to do this continues and I can't possibly imagine myself doing anything else. Um, I even tried to do something else. I had a pretty active career as a scenic designer and um, worked in theater and film and TV for almost a decade. But there's a ways in which that stream of work uh, did not allow for, I think, the kind of intellectual and um, material conversations that I was really interested in. Because I think something that I love about um, visual artists is their ability to create something in a form that can touch on so many aspects of our society simply through materiality. Um, so it can be, you know, very finely carved, expensive marble, or it can be um, cardboard that's been painted now at this moment. And why are these materials coming up and um, presenting themselves in the gallery? What is the financial situation around that that has um, led artists towards different materials at different times. And also that the materials can somehow then connect us to other continents, other economies, and they can signify culture. And I have not found anything that satisfies the complexity of the world in the way that I think visual art does. And it also appeals to me, I think, because even though there's been attempts to create a straight linear narrative, it it constantly is up, uprooted. As a black woman, I think you intimately understand what it means to be um, a complex person in a world that doesn't understand your complexity. So I just think visual art artists do that for me, the great ones, the ones that I deeply respect and I I want to make room for them. And and you are absolutely right, I think. And for myself as well, what has drawn me to art and the creative arts and and the therapeutic aspect of even, you know, being able to learn more about art 
to yeah. see it. Yeah. Uh, it's, it speaks to, like you said, our complexity of being, you know, black women, women of color. And it's something that's also drawn me to it as well. And, and part of the reason why we created this, um, you know, component of our, our nonprofit in the anti-trafficking world, which is, you know, the creative therapeutic arts to heal trauma. Mm. So I think it's really important. And then on that point as well, you know, artists have always been at the forefront of protests for equality throughout history. And I, I was reading a hyperallergenic uh, article from 2017, and I'm just going to quote it now. Uh, you know, this resonates with the approach of the May 22nd, 1970 New York artist strike against racism, sexism, repression, and war, also commonly referred to as the art strike. Mm. Despite the different circumstances, many of the concerns artists expressed in 1970 mm. continue to resonate today during mm. the art strike and in the months before and after, artists argued that trustees exploited their positions on museum boards to distract from their involvement in the oligarchy that perpetrated the Vietnam War. New York museums are, were asked to instead focus on the needs of more of the city's residents to exhibit the work of Black, Puerto Rican, and women artists and to include artists on their boards. The artists responded to an atmosphere of crisis by pointing to ways in which the institutions and structures of the art world appeared culpable and then sought to change them. So I would love, and I know we didn't talk about this, but I, I you know, in doing research about what you're passionate about and who you are, you know, this article and that quote kind of resonated there at Artspace New Haven and your current exhibition that you have going right now, the history of artists being able to use their voices creatively and their actual voices to, to speak in protest for equality. Yeah, I think that, you know, I was familiar with the art strike. Um, you know, 1970 is the year I was born. So um, when I started to learn about what had happened then, was after I had already kind of made the decision to work in museums. So it was really challenging to say, to see these things and then say, well, I was accepted into this internship, so maybe things are changing. You know, I was accepted into, um, I, I got this job, so, uh, and Thelma's here, so maybe things are changing, you know. Uh, and I do think, in particular in the 90s, it was this moment uh, where there were there was a lot of activity around black artists and um, so then when in I guess yeah the early 21st century I started to hear young uh, PhD students dismiss that era as the identity politic era and oh that was just a moment and um, I was so confused because I was like, wait a second, a lot of my friends had these great shows. <laughs> like they did all of this work. And as I kind of mentioned earlier, that, you know, my professors and older colleagues were certainly less excited to see artists get a big gallery and get a solo show in a museum because they understood that there were 
a lot of ways that the museum was not serving the constituency in New York and across the country with their board members and other staff. That outside of the artist list and their exhibitions, there are very few people of color working inside. When I read these histories now and think about all of the work that we have done in different ways, um, I also try to remember that uh, while I feel in community with Black people often, that we're as just as complicated and diverse as any community. You know, there are lots of different views about which way to go and how to move forward and have we moved forward and is it better. But I think I have been really helped by people who remind me to step back and take a larger view at it. It's not simply about whether or not I have a job sometimes, right? We want to think about how to address the way in which museums remain financially viable on the backs of stolen artwork and goods uh, and the people who made them. And in many ways, it continues with contemporary artists today. You know, it's still unusual in many institutions outside of major tourist centers like LA or New York to not receive an, a fee or professional fee to exhibit their work in a museum. So they will, uh, if they have a gallery, the gallery might um, pay some production costs or the museum will pay production costs, but, uh, and then there'll be costs to install the exhibition but unless an artist is smart enough to keep some of the production money for themselves, um, they are not earning income off of these shows. Um, or unless they have a way to sell the work, if the museum doesn't acquire it, there's no way to actually earn an income. And that when an auction house has a sale and announces that um, a black artist's painting went for however many millions of dollars. That artist is not receiving any of that money. And there have been challenges with that and work to get artists a percentage of an auction sale, but they haven't all worked out. Ownership in and of itself, sometimes, if I think about it too deeply, does feel more connected to colonialism and slavery in particular. Right, because it's it's built on who owns the painting at the time that it was put to auction, and then who would benefit from the sale? Well, the owner would, not necessarily the person who made it. And that's the way our country works. Um, how do you change that system without asking artists to do all of the work? you know, create the work, distribute the work, promote the work. You know, some small businesses do that, but they don't do it alone. And artists are often a sole proprietorship and they maybe have a couple of assistants, but it's a very strange economic system in relation to the way we work. And so Artspace is an organization that started 30 years ago coming out of an alternative space movement. It was started by a group of artists in New Haven with the idea that they would have more of a say over the care and distribution of their work. And even in those 30 years, that system is not perfect. Um, that system struggles to have support 
financial support in particular from individuals. They were trying to say to people, you know, there is value in um, the work and the people that create things with their hands and want to do it to um, possibly help illuminate something out in the world for the rest of us that we're not seeing. Again, all of those financial systems that are so tied to businesses in the U.S. and and for art space, it's certainly true. It's it's rent, it's keeping the lights on, it's uh, being able to pay staff members, and it's being able to work with artists and help them understand how that financial system works so that they can be better collaborators. Um, and sometimes artists don't want that. You know, they they want to think about their work and it takes a lot of focus and strength and so why should they have to do all of the other work at the same time and so rather than artists running these spaces over the years it has become very professionalized and um, in addition to art history programs curatorial studies programs have kind of brought a wave of individuals who can talk about the artwork, but are also prepared to lead the conversations with all kinds of stakeholders. And I think the challenge for them becomes when you're doing this to help your audiences learn about the work, but also what's going on behind the scenes in a way that was has always been very opaque. And so I think that is what I'm feeling is my hope for working at ArtSpace just sort of like seeing the the art space new haven platform i'm seeing that it's so different and it feels so different than a lot of other arts programs and platforms that are out there just even within the in the website and how you have your current exhibition revolution on trial positioned and how you're giving voice in so many ways like you you had the uh, panel discussion yesterday you know, giving voice to the curators and the artists. It's not just an exhibition. There's so, you have a podcast around it, like uh, front and center. It's a, it's like a history lesson, you know, and uh, it so resonates also with what's going on today. Of course, this exhibition was planned long before the headlines of the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, was happening, but it just seems so timely and it really does resonate you know, to, to the to the liberation movement that is happening in mass throughout the world right now. Can you speak a bit about the exhibition and, you know, you coming on as the executive director, the new executive director of uh, Art Space New Haven, sort of like within this process, because the curation uh, and the planning stages of this uh, exhibition were happening before you uh, sort of like came into the picture as the new uh, executive director. Yes, exactly. The exhibition that's up now, Revolution on Trial, was not my brainchild, right? <clears throat> it was uh, conceived by uh, the previous executive director, Helen Cowder, and the co-curator, Sarah Fritchie, who was the full-time curator art space at the time. After they had been on a walking tour with a curatorial fellow from Yale University Art Gallery named LaTanya Autry. And LaTanya gave them the history of May Day during the time and knowing that the 50th anniversary was coming up in 2020. 
Artspace was inspired to do something, to bring that story to the forefront. And I have to thank them. I also have to thank all of the colleagues that they were engaged with, because I think there was a way that Helen and Sarah understood after going to several conferences and engaging in conversations with other BIPOC colleagues, that they were in a position to bring the story forward for the New Haven audience and beyond. Um, a story that not a lot of people knew about and was incredibly powerful and important for New Haven. And I think the thing that I try to remind people is that when I was looking for a job, to understand that there was an organization that was preparing to put together shows like that was part of my interest in working there, right? So rather than simply short statements that go online quickly and then leave, my feeling was that they had created a curatorial um, track for this year that would allow for audiences to learn more about the city, federal leadership, and and soon civic leadership in a show we'll talk to you about later. Um, so much of the images, the initial images that we were using were from uh, New Haveners and Yale students who were taking photographs, and predominantly um, those were, you know, white uh, researchers and photographers and artists. So then what was important to me was how can we make this exhibition less about the white gaze and more about um, bringing forward the stories of people who lived through it, who still live in New Haven. And the podcast does that, which I was thrilled about. And then how can we uh, also, especially during the COVID pandemic, um, bring Latonia's um, knowledge and history that she you know, based her tour on, which then inspired this project, how can we foreground that work as well? Uh, and so that became the work. And, and things like thinking about the Black Panther Party um, in a global way, rather than as this kind of strange US fraction um, was also important to me. So now in the exhibition, there is a large map um, of the world that notes all of the places where there is a Black Panther, uh, was a Black Panther Party chapter or a, a chapter of a liberation organization that was in close communication with the Black Panthers. And so even I, I, I just feel fortunate, even though I was not there at the inception, I do feel like there were ways that I made the presentation um, of the show something that really connected to broader audience, but also lifted the voices of the black and brown people who were really living it. And so the exhibition includes work by artists who are from New Haven, some from outside of New Haven, all beautifully thinking about the possibilities, both joy and struggle within a resistance movement. And so instead of seeing guns and people standing in suits with leather jackets and assault rifles. It was really important for me to lift up work by artists like Chloe Bass, 
who is talking about love in the revolution and talking about young people and what it means to meet your community, fall in love, have families within your community and still be disrupted because of outside pressure. So I'm really excited about this show. Yeah, it's such a it's such a beautiful thought process with the imagery and the pieces that are in this exhibition. And I mean, I wish I was there so I could actually come and <laughs> instead of being in Denver right now. You know, that being said, um, how are you making this? Because we are in a pandemic and, and we are, many of us are stuck in different parts of the country and the world that we never expected to be in at this point. And that's the truth. How have you made the exhibition more accessible to people throughout the world? Yeah, well, well luckily, um, just recently we had the panel discussion with the co-curators and all of the artists on the call and it was recorded and it'll soon be up on our website and during that conversation Sarah Fritchie took great care to use installation images of the exhibition to get to walk people through the space um, and really helped even the artists frankly many of them had not traveled to New Haven to install their work and be here for the opening due to COVID. So for many of them, it was the first time they were seeing the show. And so that'll be available to audiences. And we will also be um, uploading these photographs onto our website so that you can see the images more closely, as well as their relationship to each other in the installation shots. Uh, and there will be uh, another opportunity to hear from uh, Erica Huggins, who uh, has really been an incredible um, resource and collaborator for the show. We'll have a, a talk with her that will be live streamed as well. And then we will have some walking tours through New Haven that are outside because for us, it was really important to be able to share with um, larger audiences, the neighborhood where the Black Panthers were living and working. We have about 3,000 square feet. Um, you can enter the galleries with a mask. And um, as long as you are practicing social distancing in the space, we feel confident that visitors can come. And so the exhibition is open until October 17th. And I'm really hoping that people will take the time um, to come if they can. That's really great that you're offering other avenues and, and ways in which uh, people can support and view the exhibition uh, without actually being there. I mean, I think it's most important to see an exhibition in person, you know, if you can, because you get the full impact and the beauty and the the messaging behind it, I think better. But that's great that you also included the tour and the Zoom call that you had. And, and I'm looking forward to, to getting the link to that as well. And we will also share that. Final thoughts. I wanted to speak about disrupting systemic racism in the arts and culture sector from thought to action. I was reading another article on an art consulting website. Some initial thoughts that this consultancy had were to promote governance and board recruitment models that 
move clients away from activities that reinforce white supremacy and towards practices that amplify diversity on both people and perspectives, proactively identify, cultivate, recruit, and place people of color from uh, executive uh, search clients, you know, within institutions and to ensure job opportunities. They have like different bullet points on how their consultancy is promoting equality and equity and visibility and diversity and, you know, all of those buzzwords. You know, what are your thoughts on disrupting the systemic racism uh, within the arts industry and, and also the thoughts that lead to the actions that can now evolve us? There are a few ways, but I think that until we kind of reconcile what it means for these institutions to hold cultural histories, often cultural histories that are not their own, um, and get to decide when and how those things are brought to the public. Until we can think about that in a way that does not discount um, people of color, poor people, um, and make assumptions about the kind of work that they would be interested in, um, we're not going to get very far. The larger the institution, the more of a web it is and the more difficult I think it can be. And until leaders are really willing to uh, give up some of the privilege that they hold and the information that they hold, it'll be difficult to make big change. Um, and again, another reason why I'm looking forward to doing things at art space in the way that they were meant to be done as an alternative space. So, you know, I've done things like already go through the full budget with my staff, explain to them why the budget is the way it is and how much money we have and how much more money we need. Um, I can't tell you how much they appreciated that. And to open up some of these hidden processes that benefit the few rather than many. Um, I think it'll be really difficult to make change. Thank you so much for your insight there. Final thoughts and, and how, you know, our audience can stay connected to you and to the work of Artspace New Haven, how they can support, how they can make donations, like where y'all need the support. Um, and what that would look like from people wanting to come in and offer that support. Yeah. So there are a few ways you can um, go to our website, um, go to the donate page, um, like many websites. And frankly, anything that people can give, I, I really want to emphasize that, you know, $25 to $250, um, every little bit helps us every month. And what I'd like to see are, you know, sort of regular monthly donations where people just like NPR or other organizations are really saying, you know, I want to see you all thrive. And so I'm going to be able to do this every month or every year. We are also having a fall fundraiser. September 26th will be uh, the last day of a month long silent auction online where there'll be many artworks available from artists in New Haven and beyond. Um, and there'll be a, a 
a great website up and, and I hope people will look at that. And then in October, uh, we have our annual Citywide Open Studios, which is really changing this year due to COVID. And a lot of the um, programming and art for sale is going to be online. So we will have the Citywide Open Studios website live on October 1st where you will be able to see artist pages, um, see up to 10 objects that they have for sale, or you can sign up for a virtual studio visit so that instead of walking into a building here in New Haven, you can schedule to talk to anyone who will kind of, you know, on video walk you through their space and the work that they do. And I'm so thrilled that the artists in New Haven might be able to talk to people in Washington State or Chicago or Texas, rather than um, just the people to happen to walk through. I think that the more that we can connect and see uh, how we are the same, um, we'll stick together. So um, I would love for any and all of you to participate in Citywide Open Studios this year. I'd like to thank Lisa Dent for joining us today. Please check out Artspace New Haven's current exhibition, Revolution on Trial. Support them by following their work on social media at Artspace NH and make a donation to their org at artspacenewhaven.org. Uh, we'll include all of these links in the episode notes for the podcast. Please subscribe to Breaking Distance and support us. We are on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Simplecast, and on our website, beautyforfreedom.org. Follow us on social media, on Facebook and Instagram. We're at Beauty for Freedom, all spelled out. And on Twitter, at Beauty, the number four freedom. Stay tuned for upcoming Breaking Distance episodes. We look forward to bringing you more thought-provoking, sincere, and transparent programming soon. Thank you so much. Breaking Distance. Connecting communities, igniting change.